It is good to see everyone here, and I pray you've been looking forward to this as much as, as I have. I mean, I've really been putting a lot into it, reading, studying, praying, even fasting. I see y'all are looking at me like I'm some kind of super Christian. But in full disclosure, I had to fast because I was doing blood work, and the doctor said I couldn't eat or drink anything from midnight to 8 a.m. Tracy says that's not fasting, but to me, it, by definition, it meets the, meets the mark. But there, just for a moment, y'all may have been looking at me as a guy who fasts, prays, reads, tithes, worships every time the door is open. A model Christian. And it's precisely a group just like this that John calls a brood of vipers. I think we lose the shock factor. We're so familiar with the story, it just doesn't stun us like it would have stunned those there that day. We're all too familiar with it. The same as the Luke 18 passage where the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're both in the synagogue, they're praying. And the, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. And the Lord said it was that man who went down to his house, not justified. That is shocking. Perhaps it may shock us to realize that we have much more in common with the Pharisee rather than the tax collector. As a subject behind me today is true repentance, not religious penance, true repentance. And an easy place to turn for this is going to be Matthew 3. Matthew 3, as John the Baptist bellows out, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now I do want us to be familiar of where we are in the history of Israel and where we are just in this setting. God has not spoken by the mouth of a prophet in over 400 years. Over 400 years since He's spoken to the people of Israel by the mouth of a prophet. And when the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi, the picture of Israel we have is one that goes like this. Malachi 1 verse 6 says that the people despise the name of the Lord. They were offering the blind, the lame, the sick. That's, that's the offerings they were bringing to offer to the Lord. So much their worship had got so cattywampus that the Lord actually said, I wish there was one among you who would just shut the doors. You can better serve me by just closing the doors. They actually would go on to say it's vain to serve God. Better to serve Him by closing the doors. Don't pretend to worship me despising His name. That's, that's the picture we have when the book of Malachi closes. And for 400 years, they sat with that being the last message they heard from the Lord. Silent until a priest by the name of Zechariah enters the temple. And the angel Gabriel approaches him and tells him that he is going to have a child. He is going to have a child. Him and his wife Elizabeth were both advanced in age. They were both old, childless. She's barren. And the angel comes to inform him. He will have a son announces the birth of John. The child will be saved in his mother's womb, we read. The father's going to be mute until the child is born. All these 
things are happening right here in, in the early pages of, of Luke, which we're not reading Luke, but I find it hard to believe that the religious leaders ever really lost sight of John. This long-awaited prophet burst onto the scenes in Matthew 3. And he's preaching repentance. So I'll begin reading. I'll read 1 through 5 to kind of get us going. Matthew 3, 1 through 5. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Let's just pause right there for, for a minute. So this is, this is the prophet. This is the first time God's going to speak through the mouth of a prophet in 400 years. And he's came here to prepare the way. He's came with a message of repentance. And we see in verse 5, this message house received, it says there, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Now this, this is exaggeration, but it's, it's exaggerated to make a point. The point is plainly this. They were coming to John in waves. But what is it about this oddball in the wilderness that created such a response? Well, we do know from Scripture that the people regarded John as a prophet. And this announcement of his birth had created such a, such a, a buzz, I'm sure. And 30 years later, 30 years later, his ministry begins, and it begins here with them going out to him. And that's used... In Greek, it's the imperfect tense, which means an ongoing and continuing action. They, they were coming out to John, and they kept coming, and they kept coming. That's what we read. It says in verse 6, they were being baptized by him in the name. I'm sorry, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, it says. Being baptized, confessing their sins. And look, just so we're straight on this, I want to make sure we're straight on this. They were baptizing before John the Baptist. This wasn't a new thing. They were baptizing before. Whenever a Gentile would want to follow the God of Israel, they would baptize him. They would, and it would symbolize that they were leaving behind their pagan ways. Symbolically, they were dying to their old life. They were coming up out of the waters, a newborn child with the entire new identity. That's what the baptism would, re would represent. So here John is telling the people, Jews, they needed to turn to the God of Israel. Turn from their sin. And he's baptizing them, symbolically dying to their former life. And droves of people were coming out to him. So then we see verse 7. But when he, being John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
Now, according to Luke, you read this account in Luke, the crowds are coming out to John, and there are waves of people that's coming out to John. But in Matthew, Matthew's intentionally pointing out the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it says many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism. Coming to his baptism, not coming to be baptized. They were there to investigate. And if... Matthew 3 is the same encounter we read in John 1. It reads like this. John 1 verse 29 reads, When the Jews, talking about the Jewish leaders, they sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to him, to John, asking, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He answers, no, I'm not. Well, are you the prophet, the prophet, the one prophesied by Moses? He answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? We must give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So they're coming to John, sent by the Jewish leaders, and they're asking him, what is your ministry? What is this baptizing Jews? Children of Abraham have no need to be baptized. So John here asked them this, and I would have loved to have heard how how this was spoken. You brood of vipers, Who warned you from the wrath to come? So, I mean, just did he say, Who warned you from the wrath to come? Who? Well, John was a prophet, right? The Hebrew Nabi, a mouthpiece of God. And John, like I quoted earlier, John, they really knew John was a prophet. He was speaking for God. So who warned them? When he's warning them, who warned them is a question. We could actually read 2 Kings verse chapter 17, reads like this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and by every seer saying, Turn from your evil way. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by the prophets. So who warned you to flee? Well, it was the Lord who had warned them, right? He's just doing it through the mouth of John here. Stressing the necessity of repentance. Who warned you? Or maybe he said, who warned you? Maybe, maybe the you. Who warned you to flee? You, the religious elite. You, the cream de la cream. Who warned you? Look, their arrogance is summed up to me In John 7, as we were going through it, it just kind of stuck in my mind. John 7, verse 45, it says the officers then came. They're going to arrest Jesus. So the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring them? You know, we sent you out to bring them in. Why did you not bring them in? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like Jesus. The Pharisees answered them, Have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Him? 
We don't believe in them. And if you do, you must be deceived. By this, the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. We haven't been deceived. And those who are believing in Him, they're accursed. You see, they had become really their own standard bearer. We don't believe it, therefore it's not true. And if you believe it, you're accursed. That's the point. They were attempting to justify themselves. That's, that's obvious through Scripture. Romans 10 says they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And they thought they were righteous. And John calls them a brood of vipers. A brood, children. Children of snakes. Children of the serpent. Child of the devil. And Jesus doesn't mince words either when He says to them, You are of your father, the devil. Jesus uses this same language, this brood of vipers language later on in Matthew, and He uses it this way. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Isn't that what John's saying? They looked the part. Well, they talked the part. They were evil. Top to bottom. Look, they were no more... Here, see, they're baptizing them. They're baptizing these, these proselytes who are wanting to be you know, converted to the, the God of Israel. And he's telling them, look, you are no more prepared to meet your Messiah than the Gentiles are. And by the way, the Gentiles wasn't looking for their Messiah. They needed to repent. They needed to do a 180. So who warned you? God warned them. Who warned you? Everyone. Everyone is included in this you here. Acts 17 says God commands all people everywhere to repent. All people, even the religious folk even the religious elite, super-Christians. Verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to yourself to say, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Look, bear fruit, verse 8, in keeping with repentance. Jesus has already said a tree is known by its fruit. Either make the, the tree good and its fruit good or the tree bad and its fruit bad. Look, a tree is known by its fruit. Or the NLT puts this verse this way. Prove by the way you live that you had repented of your sins and turned to God. Look, and here, this is it. This is where the misunderstanding comes in. Repentance, bearing fruit, Proof of repentance, those, those type things. And it's easy to blur those lines between repentance and penance. They may sound the same, but theirs different as night and day. Penance is, is really like voluntary self-punishment. It, it can consist of service to neighbor, offering works of mercy, self-denial, things along those lines. And look, just to kind of show you give you some maybe, this is kind of how we ended up where we are. The Latin Vulgate, those of you who are familiar with that, well, the Latin Vulgate 
was the Bible translation for more than a thousand years before the King James was ever even existed. For over a thousand years, that was the Bible, was the Latin Vulgate. So when we read Matthew 3, 2, and it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Latin Vulgate read, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the way it reads. Do penance. And actually, even today, the Catechism of the Catholic Church reads this way. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1459, says this, quote, The sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for his sin. He must make satisfaction for his sin. This satisfaction is also called penance. End quote. Next paragraph, 1460, reads, It, penance, can consist of prayer, offering, works of mercy, service to neighbor, voluntary self-denial, sacrifices, and above all, the penitent, the patient acceptance of the cross we must bear. End quote. That is the Catholic catechism today. So for over a thousand years, either from a poor translation or an outdated translation of Matthew 3, a misguided teaching on penance, it has at best, at best, troubled Christians. At worst, it left them in their sins. A good example of this is Luther. Luther, for example. Luther would deprive himself of sleep. He would fast. He would endure winter nights without a blanket. He would sleep on hard floors. He would sleep outside in the snow. He would actually flail or whip himself. Luther was doing penance. Luther would later go on to say, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. And although the Catholic teaching that, quote, the sacrament of penance frees us from our sin, end quote, Luther could find no such freedom. Luther actually says that penance promoted a troubled conscience. Penance, penance promoted a works righteousness. And so, look, my point is, don't sit here and think that we're immune to centuries and centuries and centuries of this teaching. That we're not somehow influenced by the Vulgate. We, we, I think we just are. So when we read Mark 1, which Mark 1 is going to be exactly what is being said over here in in Matthew 3, where John the Baptist says, Repent and believe in the gospel. By the way, that's our message. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message we proclaim. But when repentance is replaced by penance, we miss the mark. And when repentance is poorly defined, we miss the mark. There's a Baptist preacher who recently said, quote, Repentance is stopping evil and doing godly things. Repentance is stopping evil and doing godly things. Look, that's confusing at best. And so the question you have to ask is, what does the lost hear? I need to repent. I need to stop doing evil and do godly things. I need, I need, to, I need to stop... Put away my sin. I need to start doing godly things. And then I need to believe. 
Right? That's what they hear. So unintentionally, it can be misunderstood to quit sinning to obtain God's favor. Making yourself worthy of grace. Well, then it's no longer grace. Look, we may not label it as penance. We may not. We may not sleep outside unless you made your wife mad. But those tendencies resonate within us as well. Let me try to thread this needle carefully. At the heart of penance is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. It's giving a self-denial of something, or, or whether it's a monetary gift or service to the poor. It's some, some, some type of sacrifice. So the question I want you to ask yourself, is coming to church a sacrifice to you? Giving up your Sunday. Reading your Bible, is that a sacrifice? Is it? Or is it a sacrifice to pray? Well, I mean, communing and talking with God, that's such a sacrifice, right? Look, here, maybe here's a litmus test. If you're asking yourself, do I have to? If you're asking yourself, is it required? Or are you, in, in essence, wanting your elders to give you a checklist? You're treating us as if we're the clergy and we're shelling out penance that you need to undergo to stay in God's favor. If that is your view of repentance, then you've never truly repented. Remember, it's Matthew 3. It's the religious leaders that John is calling to repentance. Those who had checked all the boxes. And John's command through imperatives is to repent. And look, Biblical repentance, true repentance is so much simpler than, than what we made it out to be. True repentance is this, is to change one's mind. That's what true repentance biblically means, to change one's mind. To change one's mind concerning yourself and to change one's mind concerning the person and work of Jesus. To turn and do a 180. Turn to Christ, turning from sins, right? Look, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Amen. Look, they are distinct. You do not, they do not occur independently of one another. Okay? You cannot have faith without repentance, and you cannot have repentance without faith, right? Amen. How can you come to Christ without leaving where you've been? That's, that's what we're getting at here. Faith in Christ results in a repentive life or a repentant life. Maybe repentance can be summed up best with Jesus' words to the rich young ruler when he says, follow me. Follow me. Following Jesus will entail turning from your sins. Turning to Christ, turning from sin, becoming a new creation. All this encompasses conversion. And conversion is one spontaneous miracle. But practically, faith is a catalyst. Repentance does not precede faith. Repentance does not produce faith. 
And so whether it's careless language or maybe a poor understanding, we could unintentionally be misrepresenting the gospel. And we need to be cautious or we will be exactly where the Pharisees are in Matthew 3. Well, let me show you how an improper understanding distorts the gospel. This will be an easy one. Luke 19, if you want to turn there. Luke 19. This is the story of Zacchaeus. So Luke 19, verse 1, it says, When he, Jesus, entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, they all grumbled. I'm sorry, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Look, this isn't just a, a, an anomaly. This is, this is a common... Look, I read a number of these. Listen to the mishandling of this passage. And it all is going to begin with an erroneous definition of repentance. And this subtle distinction here affects the gospel. Listen to this. Here's what one says. Zacchaeus declares his repentance and his effective penance, doing good deeds, right? He's going to give away half his good. He's going to restore fourfold. He declares his penance when he declares at dinner that he'll give half of his wealth to the poor and repay fourfold anyone whom he had defrauded. Then and only then does Jesus state salvation has come to this house. End quote. That distorts the gospel, does it not? Listen to another one. After he declares this intention, Jesus reveals salvation has come to him. After this, he's forgiven. After he's made satisfaction for sin, after he's done penance, then he's forgiven. Do you see how a misunderstanding creates a false gospel? That doing penance is somehow earning God's favor? Reading, praying, tithing, church attendance. Do we view these things as ways in which we obtain God's favor? Do we view these things in a way in which we, we remain in God's favor? Be careful, or you may end up exactly where the Pharisees are. Because they inherently were worthy of God's favor. One, because they were children of Abraham. It's just who they were. Two, they had done penance, right? They gave away half their goods. That's what the, the Pharisee says in Luke 18, right? I tithe on all that I get. They were, they were fasting. They were abstaining from food. They were laying aside all the sinful pleasures of life. It was their duty-bound worship. Duty-bound. It kind of reminds me of David Pittman's sermon. 
There's no joy in that duty-bound worship. It's so far from what David says in Psalm 122. When he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That brought joy to David. It wasn't a burden. It wasn't a sacrifice. David was going to the house of the Lord out of a sense of duty. Was it a burden? Was it penance? It was a joy. It was a joy to serve the Lord. Look, and I'm just afraid that, that many, if not most, just have the wrong understanding of repentance. What we've done, here's what we've done. True repentance, having a change of mind on who Jesus is. And we're following Him. And as we're following Him, these things just kind of fall by the wayside. Okay, so what we've done is we've taken the results of repentance and we made that the definition. Hence the confusion. Because we're all leaving behind different sins. We're leaving behind these sins at different rates, at different speeds. We're shedding them at different speeds, I should say. But true repentance is leaving those things because we are following Christ. And if you think I've oversimplified it, Jesus sums it up again in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, just to give you the context there, he's speaking to the Pharisees. And he's, he's actually re- referencing John the Baptist. Matthew 21, verse 32 says, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. The King James and the NIV and a few others put repent there. It's not the exact same word, metaneo. It's, a, it's kind of akin to that. But the point is, Jesus says, you did not change your minds and believe. You see, you see what true repentance is? It's just a change of mind on who Jesus is. And when you have a change of mind on who He is and who you are, you follow Him. So I, I guess the, the, the question... We must have a change of mind. And so what settles it in your mind that you are truly saved? What settles it in your heart? Sinclair Ferguson actually says, quote, the altar call has replaced penance. The altar call has replaced penance. Remember the Catholic catechism, repentance is making satisfaction for your sins. And it consists of praying, offering works of mercy, right? So the altar call today has replaced that by close your eyes, bow your head, raise your hand, say a prayer, right? So what settles it in your heart that you're truly saved? Do you look, what are you, what are you basing your salvation on? I, I raised my hand. I'm being serious. I mean, I said a prayer, I was baptized, I tithe, I go to church. Look, those things will never free you from your sins. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Okay? The gospel is proclaimed. And and God does a supernatural work in your heart. You're changed. You're a new creation. As last night, 
You, you changed your mind on who you are. You changed your mind on the person and work of Jesus, and you follow Him, period. And by following Him, you will, by default, have turned away from your sins. Okay? Let's, let's not get the, the, the order mixed up there. That's not, you know, it's not telling the, the druggie he must put down his needle, he must read his Bible, he must come to church, he must tithe, and then he must believe. No, just follow Christ and those things will be left behind. That's our message. Follow Jesus. Look, earlier we made the observation that the, the, the Jews on John the Baptist's day, they were no more prepared to meet their Messiah than the Gentiles were. And the Gentiles wasn't even looking for their Messiah. So D.A. Carson actually says that they were showing the world how ready they were for their Messiah. But they're never truly repentant. So the question today is, are you prepared to meet your king? Because the message remains the same. Repent. Repent. Not do penance. Not some works-based salvation. Burn it into your mind that biblical repentance is a change of mind. And maybe this will help you. Maybe it will. All right, take the common understanding or misunderstanding, I'm going to say, that repentance is stopping doing evil and doing godly things. Okay, that's, that's a common understanding. Apply that understanding, that definition, to the thief on the cross. How did the thief on the cross repent by that definition? How did he stop doing evil and start doing godly things? How did the thief on the cross do that? Well, by definition, he didn't repent by that definition. But you take the biblical definition, the scriptural definition, to change one's mind. How did the thief on the cross repent? Oh, he definitely changed his mind on who Jesus Christ was. Right? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He changed his mind on who God was and who he was. So the thief on the cross absolutely repented. True repentance is following Christ until your dying breath. It wasn't long for the thief on the cross. And so the difference between a monetary or momentary, momentary remorse and, and godly repentance just comes out over time. It's a life of submitting to and following Jesus as Lord. Kevin DeYoung, one last quote. Kevin DeYoung says this, There is almost nothing rarer in this world than true, genuine, deep, earnest repentance. Because it means dethroning yourself and enthroning God. So I thought about that. You know, we're on our little makeshift thrones and our little makeshift kingdom, and we're not willing to climb down from it and bow to Him. You know, we, we, we imagine one day in, in heaven just casting our crowns at His feet. What, what makes you think you'd be willing to do that? If you're not willing to do it now, you know, you're not willing to give up a perishable crown. Now, maybe we think a little too highly of ourselves. So the question 
or the command echoed by John the Baptist and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to repent. Have a change of mind on who you are and who Jesus Christ is. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen?